My thanks once again to those who have fed and watered me today. I'm sorry you didn't have Jill with you, but I very much enjoyed your fellowship and tender care. So thank you for that as always. We look at the great prophetic passage of Isaiah 53, the season of Advent when we think of the Lord coming. We recognize that there is much in the Old Testament which which confirms our faith. His conception is foretold. He'll be born of a virgin. The location of his birth is foretold. It'll be in Bethlehem, Ephratah. The subsequent events in his life are foretold. And particularly here in Isaiah 53, this great passage, which, as I pointed out, has got all sorts of prophetic elements in it that relate directly and only to the Lord Jesus. And I point out again that prior to his coming and the failure of the nation of Israel to recognize him as Messiah, Isaiah 53 was constantly taught, and you can check this yourself if you look at the ancient writings, was constantly taught by the various rabbis as to refer directly to the Messiah. After the death of Christ, it is never referred to by the rabbis as referring to the life and death of the Messiah. Strangely significant because after he was put upon a cross and fulfilled these scriptures, it was somehow or other obliterated from the Jewish mind and they no longer recognized this particular passage as referring to him who hung upon a tree for us. We're going to read from verse 6 tonight. Just a little bit overlap with this morning. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. A remarkable passage of scripture, as I pointed out this morning. Just a little recap, not for Graham's benefit, but just for ours. A reminder that the first statement of verse 6 states unequivocally 
that the nature of a sheep is to go astray. And you and I, because we inherited the sinful nature of our first prince, uh, go astray. It's not our fault. It is part of who we are. In the inherent sin of the human race, we go astray. But the next phrase is our responsibility. In our sinful nature, each of us has turned to his own way. And we each take decisions at times which we recognize are diametrically opposed to the will of God. And we go our own way. Or as Sinatra said, we do it our way. And then this beautiful phrase, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the immensity of that cannot be imagined. When the sun shut itself away at Calvary, in those three hours of darkness, God made to meet upon his Son the iniquity of us all. And if you're here tonight, then we're among that all. All have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then we come to the manner of his death and the reality of what was happening upon the cross. And you notice these phrases, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. That is, he didn't open his mouth in his own defense in these circumstances. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And Graham has already reminded us the significance of the lamb. This innocent victim that runs like a golden thread through the Old Testament. This one that was put to death in its innocence in order that the children of Israel might continue to live. And when the Lord said in Exodus 12, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That was repeated generation upon generation upon generation, not just in relation to the Passover lamb, but in relation to the sacrifice upon the altar every day of the year, ongoingly. The shedding of blood was essential in order to make a covering, a temporary covering for sin. And then the Savior comes and makes an atonement, a permanent covering for sin, but more of that in just a moment. So he didn't open his mouth in his self-defense. And he who is the Lamb of God goes before his oppressors as the Lamb of God. The, the phrase, he was oppressed, is a phrase that we use in our modern parlance very readily. We talk about being under pressure. We really don't know the first thing about it. This is oppression. He was oppressed. He was under the pressure of making atonement for my sin and for your sin. And as the Father makes our sin to rush upon him, which is the last phrase of verse 6, as the Father makes our sin to rush upon him, then he becomes the universal sacrifice and dies for sin as a principle upon the cross and lays down his life. He was afflicted, placed under suffering. And we, we cannot measure 
the reality of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. We talk about it a lot. And we talk about how much the Lord suffered. But you can't quantify it. How can we possibly quantify what it must mean for a sinless soul to bear all the oppression and punishment for sin as he dies upon the cross? To enter into death, he who is life itself, he who had never experienced death, he who is the very essence of living, who could say to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He takes our frail flesh, as Frank Houghton says in one of his, his famous hymns. He takes our frail flesh in order that he might lay down his life. Just utterly beyond expression. And as oppressed and afflicted, he voluntarily takes the punishment for our sin as we were thinking about earlier today in the earlier verse, in our earlier verses. He didn't complain about the intensity of the suffering. Nevertheless, my will, not my will, but thine be done. And a submission to the Father's will was accompanied by the silence of perfect patience as he lays down his life for you and me as a lamb. But that wasn't the only oppression that the Lord suffered. Because you'll notice that verse 8 brings the same phrase, but from a different aspect. By violent oppression and a judicial sentence, he was taken away. So this is not the pressure that comes upon him because of the bearing of sin. This is the pressure that comes upon him as he is brought before Pilate and before Annas, brought into the, the vicinity of the high priest in his house. And if you want to know anything about oppression, then read again the trial of the Lord Jesus, this illegal happening which was brought about. And though a judicial sentence was passed, it was not a sentence that could have been passed if they had followed the law of the land. It was an oppressive thing and brought about because of their enmity to the Son of God by violent oppression and a judicial sentence he was taken away and you read that and think to yourself well that's the end of it isn't it who can speak of his descendants because as the scripture says he was cut off and it just meant to terminate to bring to a violent end cut off in the midst of his days. He was cut off from the land of the living. And for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. For the overstepping of the mark in relation to the law. And all of us have been guilty of that. Taken deliberate steps which demonstrate the fact that our sinful nature is rampant within us. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And you can hear the, the voice of God on this, can't you? It comes across not so much as the statement of a prophet, but as the recognition that God and the prophet speaks through his spirit. His spirit. And the stroke comes upon him rather than upon us, which is the use of the word stricken here. It means to, to strike upon. And God brings to bear upon his precious son, the wrath that is due to my sin and yours. 
But it's over, isn't it? He's died. He's been cut off. And the, the beauty of the prophetic utterance is that it doesn't stop with the death of Christ. And we often see this passage as having that prime application. And to some degree it does. But it leads on, this middle stanza leads on to the final series of statements that come at the end of this great chapter. But you'll remember verse 9, and the next time you read of the Lord's burial, you'll remember the various things that happened in relation to this. He was assigned a grave of the wicked. Pilate ordered that the bodies be taken down from the cross and that they all share a common grave. So those who were condemned with the Christ were also to be taken down from the cross because, as the Jews said, we don't want him to be hanging on a cross on our holy day. So we'll take them down and assign them to a grave with the wicked because they didn't want Christ to be honored in any way. You know, it was their position before Pilate. We'll not have this man to reign over us. We don't want him. We want rid of him. And he's going to be assigned a grave with the wicked. But you notice what follows. He was with the rich in his death. And I can see Isaiah writing this and saying to himself, what on earth is this about? Eh? He's been assigned a grave with the wicked, and yet somehow he's going to be with the rich in his death. And a little man comes out of the woodwork. Well, I don't think he was so little. But Joseph of Arimathea was one of the Sanhedrin who had condemned Christ to death. And Joseph comes before Pilate and he says, Look, I really want to have the body of this man. I want to have his body. And Pilate says, you can have his body. If he had gone to a Jew, do you think the Jews would have said you can have the body? So he goes to Pilate. And Pilate, under the reaction of the Spirit of God, says to Joseph, you can have the body. And Joseph and Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin, take down the body from the cross. And they sort of think to themselves, I know where to put this body. Not at all. This rich man, and the scripture delineates him as such. Joseph of Arimathea says he's going in the tomb that I prepared for my own death. I mean, what, what an amazing gift. He's going to be buried with the wicked. Uh-uh. He's going to be with the rich in his death. And one of the things that you and I need to remember, I think, coming up to this Christmas time, is that this is all in the determinate knowledge and for in the determinate wisdom and foreknowledge of God. This is as it is. This was bound to be. You see, it was impossible for Christ to be buried in a common grave with other criminals because God had decreed it thus 700 years earlier. It had to be. And I can remember in my late teens when I was wrestling with various aspects of faith, just beginning to recognize that what God said came to be because it was God who said it. That you can actually trust what God says. You can actually make a commitment of a life to trust him to fulfill his will and purpose. Because he has said it. And so here, he'll be with the rich in his death. He'd done no violence. 
and there was no deceit in his mouth. I referred a little bit earlier today to the phrase which those who came to test his word said about him. And remember, they were sent in order to bring down the reputation of the Lord Jesus. And they came back to the Pharisees and they said, Listen, never a man spake like this man. Never a man spake like this man. His, his word is truth. And again and again you have the, phrases, the phrase which the Lord Jesus uses, Verily, verily, I say unto you, in truth. You know our word verity. Same emphasis. In truth I say to you, this is actually where it is at and this is what it's about. And again and again and again he says that. And here you have this prophetic word fulfilled to the letter. He had done no violence. The Apostle Peter tried to do a bit, you'll remember, in the garden. (coughs) He was a bad shot as usual. (coughs) And he cut off the high priest's ear. And what did the Lord do? He healed the wound and stuck his ear back on. The first wonderful bit of immediate transplant surgery you have. The Lord does it. He doesn't do violence. You know what he says to Peter? Do you not know I could have called 12 legions of angels? Not 120,000. The normal Roman legion was about 8,000. So let's say 96,000 angels. You could do a bit of damage with 96,000 angels, couldn't you? But the Lord didn't call 12 legions of angels. He died alone for you and me. He does no violence. And there's no deceit in his mouth because he is who he is. But you'll notice that he's still in the grave. And let's look at verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's will. You know, I pondered this at at great length this week. The sort of majesty of the triumph of the cross. It was the Lord's will to cause him to suffer. Suffering is part of our experience. It's part of the package we have because we come from sinful stock. But the Savior was without sin. So he couldn't suffer for his own sin. But it was the Lord's will that he should suffer for your sin and for my sin. The Lord saw that his sufferings were necessary if he was going to bring about redemption. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering or sin offering, and then you come to this phrase, and I can again see Isaiah scratching his head, he will see his offspring. And Hold on a minute, didn't you say he wasn't going to have any offspring? Well, actually, no, I didn't say that. Who can speak of his descendants? What's what I said? And you notice that in verse 7. I beg your pardon, verse 8. But here, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will continue, and that's the word, will continue to prosper in his hand. So somehow or other, he who has died must live again. Don't look so pleased about it. Somehow or other, he who has died must live again. Because he can't prolong his days if he's dead. Even an Irishman can work that out. 
because the will of the Lord will continue to prosper in his hand. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So if I can express it like this, as the Savior looks down ongoingly at the accomplishment of his work, 2,100 years almost after his death and resurrection, he continues to see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. The, the suffering has accomplished its purpose, not just for the immediacy of the apostles, as they recognized the reality of faith in Christ as he came back to life again and was raised from the dead, not just for the early days of the church when 3,000 were converted in that first day and 2,000 a little while later, and everybody says, I wish it could be like that uh, today. More than 100,000 have come to faith in Christ day by day in the last week. More than a million in the last week have come to faith in Christ. I don't look very pleased about that either. But you know, this, this ongoing accomplishment of his purpose Beyond the depths of suffering are the delights of glory. Beyond the, the fragmentation of the Messiah as he appears and enters into death, the reality of it is he enters into death in order that he might reign in the power of an endless life, if I might quote elsewhere from Scripture. So his soul is made an offering for sin, but he will see his seed and will prolong his days the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. What a great thing. You know, out of every tongue and tribe and people and nation, the Lord is gathering to himself that which is beyond expression. I mean, what does the pleasure of the Lord mean? What, 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 what's it like for God to be happy? The pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand, all that Christ does and has done and continues to do brings God's pleasure. Three times during his life, God rent the heavens because he couldn't contain himself any longer. And he said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. I really get pleasure in the way he's living. What's it like after he dies and brings the redemption to accomplishment? You think the Lord still has pleasure? And every day, there's joy in heaven over sinners that repent. Every day. Just amazing. The accomplishment of Christ, be careful never to belittle it. Because we cannot exalt it enough. That which God has done in Christ. Because the, the work of God continues to prosper under the administration of the Savior both in you and I as individuals and also in the church and in the world, and soon the whole cosmos will acknowledge the Savior to the glory of God the Father. It will continue to bring him pleasure forever. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Despotize to the glory of God the Father. This wearisome labor and toil and heartache and sweat and tears and tiredness and pain and suffering accomplishes so much good and so many saved. And as we're reminded by the apostle in Romans 8, 
The whole creation groaneth and travail until now, waiting for the redemption of the body. So when the saints are raised, you have the further expansion of the glorification of Christ because there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, which is built upon what Christ has done on the cross. You understand the new creation cannot come into being until you and I have been resurrected as a result of that which Christ has done. And once that has happened, the whole creation, which has been growing under the pains of childbirth until now, then, what then? I know that some of you love creation. I hear all sorts of stories about Desmond's various views of the the seasons from the areas around Stoke Gifford and so on. Desmond, you don't know the first thing about it because the best is yet to be. And it's not just Eden restored, though one of our hymns says that, but it's brought into being that upon which sin can never again enter. Because that which Christ has accomplished is eternal. He has dealt with sin. So when you have a new heaven and a new earth, it remains absolutely pure and as God intended. And you're going to be in it and part of it. And that's a bit, I mean, I have no idea why the Lord chose you. I have far less idea why the Lord chose me. Far less, and I mean that absolutely sincerely. But what pleasure this must bring to God to recognize the restoration of all things and the, the accomplishment and the consummation of the ages as that which is dead is brought to life again. We better go on. By his knowledge, last part of verse 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify the many, and he will continue to bear their iniquities. Now, let me, if I may, just try to explain what that phrase means. It doesn't mean that Christ suffers again, but it means that with each successive generation, his suffering as accomplished, this is why he cried, it's finished. His suffering as accomplished continues to have, you know what the word efficacy means, continues to have continuous value forever. So everyone who comes to him recognizing that the Lord, the Lord bore my iniquities on the cross. Shortly before my father's death, he was in a home. And the first day I went to see him after he'd been moved into this particular home, He said to me, Peter, the Lord's been gracious to me. He was always talking about the Lord. And I said, what do you mean? He said, look out the window. And there was a ewe with two lambs that looked two or three days old. I'm no expert, but they looked two or three days old. They were the right height to reach the, the mother and do the things that are necessary for lambs to do. And I said to him, what's so wonderful about that? He says, I can't get up in the morning without recognizing the immediacy of the lamb. Yeah? And that's the phrase he used, the immediacy of the lamb. And that's what this verse is talking about. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, now alive, will justify many because the iniquities have been taken care of. And the death which he died continues down through history to be efficacious. You come to Christ this evening. The Lord will deal with your sins because he has dealt with your sin. The Lord will deal with your sins because he has dealt with your sin. 
And it continues down through history. He continues to bear their iniquities. And he stands between the justice of God and the sinful man or woman. Continually. The scripture says that the Lord continues to make intercession for us before the throne. What's he doing? He's pleading the efficacy of his blood. You can't punish that sinner because he or she is trusting in me. They have come to recognize that I died for them. I'm their savior. You can't touch them. He continues in his mercy. And then we come to verse 12. Therefore, I will, you know, this is the exaltation of the Redeemer, isn't it? Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. The spoils of battle will be divided as the victory is seen to be complete. And among the mighty of the universe, there is one who is beyond them in every sense. The one who is the supreme. And throughout the universe, which he will overcome and subdue, please recognize that the reign of the Messiah is absolute ongoingly. His truth will reign. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom will come in its fullness. And not till then, please, don't come to the conclusion that somehow or other his kingdom is complete here, because it isn't. It's complete when the work is totally finished and you and I have been brought to heaven and brought into this reality. Read. This is what, you know... Uh, the book of Revelation is not written to confuse. It's written to exalt the Lamb. And whenever you're reading it, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about what he's about and what the future is all about. You know, he, there is a, on his vesture a, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's this verse. You know, and when the final consummation comes about, his truth will reign, his will will be done on earth, his kingdom will not be a kingdom of this world, but it shall be the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. You know, read what the book says. And that's what's happening. Why? Because he poured out his life unto death. So we're right back to the cross and its effectiveness and its efficaciousness. Because he has poured out his soul unto death, it's inevitable that he be exalted to the highest place because he's poured out his soul unto death. Why? Because he was numbered with the transgressors. They put him on a cross and they said, well, he's just one of those three. And he's been numbered as one of those three. He hung on a tree and in the public's estimation at that point he was guilty under Roman law. Read Mark 15, and you'll see in verse 28 you have this emphasis. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was prepared to, to die as a man upon a cross amongst criminality because that was the, the death of a criminal in Roman times at this time. Why is he exalted? Why is he going to be given this position? Because he bore the sin of many. And please don't misquote this it doesn't mean he poured the, the, the sin of a few and there were some that he neglected to bear the sin of. The earlier verses of this chapter make it absolutely clear that he bore the sin of the many, all of them. Yeah? Not some of them. It's not the many in a defined uh, lesson sense, but it's the many, the biggest number you can think of. He bore my sin you know, this was something which got to the Apostle Paul again and again. Got to the Apostle Peter. He bore my sin. 
How did he bear your sin? In his own body on the tree. You know, the, the immensity of this, and yet the individuality of it, and the recognition that this is, this is real for me. So God highly exalts him because he's poured out his soul unto death. He highly exalts him because he was numbered with the transgressors and prepared to be labeled like that. He highly exalts him because he has borne my sin and your sin in his own body in the tree. Why is he highly exalted? Because he made intercession for the transgressors. You know, he's our continual advocate in the presence of God. And as I said a moment ago, he pleads his blood before the throne. And as the risen living Savior, he intercedes for you and me every day of our lives. It's just utterly grand. Just amazing. And so as I said earlier, Philippians 2, after the apostle has looked at the glory of the cross, he says this. And I'm going to quote probably from the AV. Where God, wherefore God has highly exalted him. Wherefore, in view of this, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That of the name of Jesus, every need should buy. Hitler. Yeah. Himmler. Stalin. Genghis Khan. Men who thought themselves lords of the earth. And one day soon they're going to acknowledge the Prince of Peace as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Given them a, a, a name above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. And you see the cohesion of Scripture in this. And you read this ancient prophecy, and I've only skimmed it tonight. I hope you'll have a look at it ongoingly in the week ahead as the Lord spares us. But there is no greater statement of the incarnation of Christ and its fulfillment anywhere in Scripture that you have in Isaiah 53. It encompasses the whole picture, his coming in flesh, his dying on the cross, his exaltation, the acclamation which is yet to be his, the glory which you and I are going to share. Just imagine rascals like us, present in the presence of the Almighty, to bring him glory. I had someone say to me, it was the week before last, when I was preaching down a different line entirely, in a pub on the Somerset levels, and the guy came up to me afterwards, and he said, you really believe all this, don't you? I said, with all my heart. With all my heart. And as I look down on you tonight, folk that I love, I've come to love over the last three years, I look forward to a better day. To a day beyond days. To a day when the Christ will rend the heavens and you and I will fly. You know, it's always been man's ambition to fly and nobody's done it yet. You're going to do it one day. Fly to meet him, to greet him, to continue with him forever. Why? Because he died on a cross. The key to life, the key to living, the key to the future is the fact that the Savior died for you and me. God bless you.
We'll pray together and then we'll sing our closing song. So let's pray, shall we? Father, we give you thanks. A plan so immense that we can't get our heads around it. And it doesn't seem to matter, Lord, how often or frequently we meditate upon it, but just to recognize that as we celebrate his coming as a babe, it is in the recognition that he comes as a savior and a sacrifice. And we wonder at the the way in which you worked this out, because it seemed impossible that lost man could ever be redeemed. It seemed impossible that we could ever be brought back to you. And as you gave that mystery of the ancient sacrifices, it must have seemed impossible to the Jew day by day and week by week and month by month that he could ever know a cleansed conscience. And yet you had it all in hand. And we praise you that through the blood of the Lamb, our blessed sinless Saviour, who gave himself for us upon the cross, you've made it possible for us to be brought back to you. We worship you tonight. We wonder at your grace and your mercy and your love and your tenderness and your patience. We just thank you for your mercy, for your grace, and for bringing us into your fold. And so we bow before you and just exalt the Saviour as we worship in his name. Amen.